Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast. I'm Cliff Taylor, standing in this week for Kieran Hancock. On today's show, are we still building the wrong houses in the wrong places at the wrong prices? Certainly, that's one of the questions raised by the latest Goodbody Stockbrokers report. Goodbody has trimmed its housing estimate for 2019 and its forecast for next year, now pencilling in just over 21,000 completions for this year and just over 24,000 for next year. That's an increase, but still well below what we need. Joining me to discuss this a little later would be Chief Economist and Director of Research with Jerry Fitzgerald, Marion Finnegan, and Orla Hegarty, Architect and Assistant Professor at UCD's School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy. Also coming up today, I'll be talking to Irish Times business reporter Fiona Redden about why credit unions across the country are imposing savings caps. But before all that, Peter Hamilton is in studio for a roundup of some of this week's other stories. Peter Hamilton, yet more measures to crack down on errant bankers announced by Pascal Donoghue this week. That's right. What's going on? The Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, has received the go-ahead from Cabinet to put forward this legislation, which would sanction senior bankers for failings under their watch. Uh, Under the new laws being drawn up, the central bank will be able to fine and disqualify senior bankers without first proving wrongdoing by their employers. So the, the case at the moment is that the central bank must find that a financial company has breached the rules before they take action against any individuals. This follows uh, from a commitment by by the Minister last November to set up a better accountability regime following from the tracker mortgage scandal uh, after almost 40,000 mortgage holders were denied their right to a cheap loan. People will be well familiar with that. So what these rules would do... Um, the, the the current maximum fine for a company is a million euro, one million euro. So this would apply to uh, individuals subject to the sanction. Um, and as as I meant, it, as I said, it also they they don't necessarily they don't have to prove wrongdoing uh, first on on the part of the company. So it's certainly a step in a, a different direction, I think, by the minister, um, and an interesting one. One does wonder about the applicability of it, the workability of it, I guess, by the central bank, given the. Legal firepower, I'm sure the central bankers would be likely, to, or the bankers would yeah. be likely to call into, call into play. Yeah, and I, I suppose the the thing at the moment it is that you have to prove that the company was involved in wrongdoing first. But even if we 
put that to one side for the moment, the length of time it has taken for the central bank mm. in any of its enforcement actions. Um, if we look at the case, the um, INBS, uh, the Irish Nationwide Building Society, that case has dragged on for, for some time now, shows no sign of conclusion because yeah. uh, one of the key figures is, is ill. Similarly, in the Quinn case, now that has, at least that has happened, mm. the Quinn um Quinn Insurance Limited that has happened but again that took a long time to come before uh, any enforcement action so it's hard to know whether these these new laws will have the teeth required Okay and of course if the boards of these banks were up to anything they they should they should be the ones dealing with their errant yeah. executives I guess And there's all of this corporate there's all of this bank this culture change in the banks going on at the moment uh, I think we'll probably see more Maybe. of that Well yeah indeed Okay uh, Another big story this week Facebook launching its own currency. Yeah, it's lo- it's planning to launch a new cryptocurrency by next year. Um, what what is interesting about this is they have gotten a number of backers, which you know Facebook maybe not the uh, most trustworthy at the moment uh, in the light of some recent scandals. They've gotten backers which make this appear viable. Yeah. Um, so they've had to put in ten million each. Some of those are Mastercard, Visa, and PayPal. So. This is going to, Libra is the name of the currency, first of all, uh, which you might be interested to know is uh, derives from the, the English pound sign. So interesting that they're basing it on that. But anyway, um, the digital currency is going, to be ba- is going to be built on their Libra blockchain. Uh, blockchain, in brief, is a ledger system whereby every transaction is recorded. Once it's recorded, you can't change it. So it sounds like a safe enough system uh, to, to us non-techies, I would have thought. Um so unlike other cryptocurrencies, this will be backed by a basket of stable and liquid assets like bank deposits and government securities. So it is therefore unlikely to see the swings that we saw with Bitcoin. And there was serious volatility in Bitcoin, so we're unlikely to see that with Libra. The reason they're doing this is to try and reach out to those estimated 1.7 billion adults in the world who don't have access to traditional banking facilities. But they do have access to mobile phones uh, and these typically in sub-Saharan Africa and, and locations like that. Uh, and, and so with this, it'll likely be available through Facebook and WhatsApp. Um, and they're aiming to launch it by the first half of next year. It'll be an interesting turn of events. And I've no doubt that it, it will be launched um, given the backers and, and there seems to be some um, some political backing although there is some political scepticism as well and clear, clearly a lot of regulatory hurdles that Facebook are going to have to jump to get this up and going yeah absolutely I mean they will but, but if you look at some of the other cryptocurrencies that exist uh, you know the, I, I think perhaps the fact that this is backed by big names mm. in the payments industry will mean that they will want to make sure this is done right, uh, which wasn't necessarily the case with other cryptocurrencies. So, um, look, it sounds okay. <laughs> Very convincing. <laughs> How does well, Facebook make money out of this? Well, so we this know? is actually a non. This is a not for profit. Uh, so they they're setting up this this group called I think it's the Libra. It's Libra Group or something okay. something along those lines. And all of these backers are putting in 10, 10 million. So this is going to be non-for-profit. Facebook, perhaps it is doing it out of the goodness of its heart, but also uh, it's worth noting that that North African market where there are so many people um, w- without access to traditional banking facilities, they associate Facebook with being the internet. Uh, Facebook is, is quite important there for connectivity and access. And you'd have to think that this further opens up that market for Facebook. Okay. Interesting to see how it develops. A couple of big commercial property assets being put up for sale this week. 
a number of assets and I'll, I'll come back to those but what them being put up for sale has raised it's raised this question of whether this part of the cycle is coming to an end now of course Dennis O'Brien a couple of years ago in 2017 I think it was January 2017 suggested that the commercial office party is coming to a mm-hmm. An end that didn't happen. We, you know, we saw office rates stay around um, sixty-five euro per, per square uh, foot mark. But a number of big sales, and one of the recent ones uh, is Starwood Property Trust. They have reportedly hired CR, CBRE to sell offices in Central Dublin for about five hundred and thirty million. People will recall that Green Reit have put their entire one point five billion portfolio of prime assets up for sale, and then there are other interesting uh, sales like. Two shareholders in St. Stephen's Green Shopping Centre have put their 64% stake, their collective 64% stake for sale at €130 million. Euro. A number of big hotels up for sale as well. Kennedy Wilson have Port Marnock Hotel up for sale and they're in line to make a, a decent wad of money there. Uh, the marker, of course, down in Grand Canal Dock is also for sale. And Eason's, the bookseller, is selling its £24.5 million, uh, retail space on O'Connell Street and they're going to lease that back. Okay. It's interesting that they're all being put up for sale at this time. And, you know, when you look at Green Reed, for example, names like Stephen Vernon, people who mm. called the property uh, crash right the last time, perhaps this is a sign of things to come. Okay, uh, we'll watch that one. We'll see what price they these assets sell at. Peter Hamilton, thank you very much. Thank you. A new report from Good Body Stockbrokers predicts that fewer new properties will be built this year than previously expected on the back of a slowdown in house price growth. A plateau in mortgage approvals an increase in new stock for sale and an increase in build costs. To discuss this in more detail, I'm joined now by Chief Economist with Terry Fitzgerald, Marion Finnegan, and UCD Assistant Professor of Architecture, Orla Hegarty. Marion Finnegan, um, the latest figures have shown that house prices are largely flat. Uh, and a report from Good Body Stockbrokers earlier in the week suggested that uh, supply in the market, maybe the growth may be starting to slow down as well. What's your perspective on, on the state of the, uh, the state of the market at the moment? I think if you look back over the last 18 months, really, we have seen a notable slowdown in the pace of price inflation. So to my mind, that largely began with the tightening in the macroprudential policy rules at the end of 2017. So we saw much less exemptions in the marketplace now. Our macroprudential policy rules are, are quite stringent in that it's three and a half times income. And if you look at average values in Dublin in particular, the, the gap is much greater than three and a half times. So the average to the average income level is probably four and a half times at least. So when you constrain a marketplace, inevitably it impacts volume of activity. And we saw that last year it was relatively flat, particularly in the second hand market. And then also that feeds into a sentiment and it feeds into the new home sector. So while we are seeing an uplift in terms of construction activity, it's not as strong as you would expect. So we moved, if you think about an, the market requiring somewhere in the order of 40,000 houses to be built every year in the short yeah. term. Um, two years ago, we built 14,500. Last year, we built 18. We'd probably do well to build 21,000 this year, and that could grow to 24 next year. So we're not getting close to what we really need in terms of delivery. And some of that is as a direct result of that lack of appetite, because people, while they want to buy, may not be able to buy what is available. So is it as simple as people not being able to afford the houses that are there? Yeah, there's part of it is, is that. And also, I mean, certainly they, the definition of affordability as ability to get a mortgage, it, they're, they're struggling. And if you look at the cost of delivery of property, then the, the, the gap becomes even greater there. So you're looking at um, 
a housing market which is delivering a very, very large volume of starter homes. So 87% of what's sold in the country last year were valued at less than 500,000, the vast majority of which were valued at less than 350,000. So the market is delivering starter homes, but the proportion of people who can still afford at those levels is becoming uh, constrained and that is impacting activity levels overall and then impacting confidence. So if you have a development community who have been stung as ours have in the last 10 years, who are paying relatively hard, high costs in terms of delivery and then have a fear that perhaps they won't sell as quickly as they'd hoped, they will slow down supply and that's what we're okay, starting to see. Are we seeing a bit of a wobble in the market? No, I mean, I think it's a reflection of current stringent lending uh, certainly but what it is probably what is causing concern is that we're not seeing the pace of pickup that we would like the pace of price inflation is absolutely fine that's in line with what you would expect it's the pace of delivery that's not meeting market requirements and I think that's where we're seeing the gap between demand and supply actually could grow simply because we can't build quickly enough Okay Orla Hegarty we're told we need, we need more homes uh, we need more homes being sold but we can't sell all the ones that are on the market at the moment. What's what's the answer to this or what's your perspective on it? Well, I think the nature of supply is a lot more nuanced than just counting houses. Mm. Um, it, it, it's very important to look uh, regionally um, to look at where the pinch points are, particularly city, the cities. The affordability is more of an issue uh, than it is in other places. Uh, but the type of supply is a, is a real issue. And I think you'll see that a lot of the limited capacity that's there to actually build has been directed into the high value housing, a lot of which is unaffordable. And it would seem from looking at some of the figures that what's happening is that the market for that high priced housing is being met or is saturated and therefore the stock isn't selling. And that will obviously stall uh, further supply coming into that market. And the market for the more affordable houses is, is quite limited as well and tends to be a little bit further out. Why is that? Why is that happening? Is it more profit margins for a builder to build a more expensive house or what's what's driving that do you think? Well there, I would think there are a number of, of things in it. Obviously when you see development happen there's a sweet point between the costs of production and the sales price and there's a margin in it for somebody to actually get on and take on the risk and build and you can see that particularly out into Kildare and in North Dublin and places like that that uh, there uh, there's a volume of housing being being produced uh, whether it's, it's the right kind of housing in terms of density and being close to the city uh, and, and preventing sprawl is, is a whole other question. But that obviously is, is the sweet spot. So what we have had in the last number of years is quite a lot of disruption uh, in terms of, of planning policy and various things. And we've also got a very hot land market, which has made a lot of sites um, uh, unviable to develop or only viable to develop for some of the other niche markets like uh, hotels or co-living or something like that. Are we still building houses in the wrong places? There has been a lot of talk, including in the government's development plan, about denser living, people living closer to city centres, good public transport links. But yes, uh, a lot of houses, as you say, are still being built out in Kildare, North County Dublin, Meath, uh, Wicklow. Well, this goes back to having a more sophisticated way of looking at supply, I think. Um, We are doing the wrong things in the wrong places again. Um, We are having policies in the cities that is is pushing into sprawl. Um, As I said, where you see where the market is active, it's questionable whether a lot of that is is sustainable. Um, And what we actually really need is is city housing that's of good quality and of decent size that's affordable. And that's the one market that is not being met. When you say city housing, do you mean apartments, houses, both? 
We, it probably means both. It means densifying the suburbs uh, in areas uh, where there is land available or where more density can be taken. And that doesn't mean necessarily mean high rise. It could be three, four floors of apartments. It means city centre um, uh, sites that are the smaller sites, uh, places where there are vacant sites for many years, some of the brownfield sites. Uh, so in some cases, it could be uh, three storey terraced housing. Uh, in suburbia, which would be very acceptable to the neighbours. In other places, it might be smaller apartment developments. And in the city centre, it could be six, seven, eight floors of apartments. Okay. Marion, are we repeating the problems of the past, building out in the commuter counties, condemning people to sitting in their cars or in public transport or buses for a large part of the day? Yeah, unfortunately, we are. I mean, if you look at construction activity, particularly over the most recent past, if you take the last couple of years and you break the country down to different regions, the only part of the country, literally, where we're delivering anything like the volume of housing units that we need is actually in the Mideast. So if you think about it, if you compare what we delivered in Dublin last year against the need, it was about half. We built just less than 7,000 units against the need for about 14,000. And the figures get worse the further away from Dublin that you go. But in the Mideast, we built just shy of 4,000 against probably what you would have thought was a natural need for about 4,000 units. Okay. So, so the Mideast is Kildare, Wicklow? Kildare, Wicklow and Meath. Meath, OK. And the reason for that is land is cheaper and you can build volume properties, three-bed semis. Now, we all know and absolutely accept that that isn't suitable for the long term, but it's what's happening now because it's viable. So we have to look at what we've done a very, very good job at controlling the financial markets in terms of security of lending. So the macroprudential policy rules are doing what they're supposed to do. They're preventing lending spiralling out of control. But on the other end of the spectrum, it is proving impossible to deliver the volume of properties that we need at those affordable levels. And we have to look at what's causing the gap between the two. Now, some would argue that if you look at the development costs, land is a problem. There's no doubt that's true. If you look at the tax takes from construction activity, 50% of the cost of building the actual property goes to the government in tax in one form or another, according to a recent SCSI report. Now, income tax on the people employed, VAT on the new house. Government levies, etc., etc. So you look at those two, you say we need more properties and we don't want people to overborrow. We need to get that balance better in order to allow delivery of properties coming in. And the particular point about higher housing. I mean, last year we built just short of 3,000 apartments in all of the country. Now, we require migration at this stage in, in our uh, economic growth levels of about 30,000 people a year. If you divide them into bunches of three, that's 10,000 units. And the vast majority of people migrating into the country will possibly choose apartment living. It's the first instance. Sure. And we built 3,000 in the entire country. I mean, it, the figures just do not equate. We have a huge problem in terms of densifying our cities and providing the type of accommodation that we need. So if we don't do something to address this, we're going to do what we did before, create this massive suburban land in the surrounding counties and actually destroy the environment as well as a result of that with people travelling in and out. It has such an impact on society. It, we, we absolutely need to get it right this time around. Are the three-bed semis being built out in Meath, Kildare and Wicklow, are they selling? Yes, yes, and selling well. And, and are they selling from people who are generally commuting into the city centre? Typically commuting into the Now, not all, all the way into the city centre. Some are, okay. are commuting into the outskirts of Dublin, but there is a huge commuter belt there, definitely. And you can see it if you travel out any of those roads every day. You can see the traffic getting worse and worse as you travel back into Dublin in the mornings and out again in the evening. So it is definitely... Without putting words into your mouth, is, is it your sense that people are buying those 
homes because they haven't got an option in some cases? Well, I think if they're looking at what they can afford and this is what they can afford and it's all that's available to them, and particularly if they're trying to benefit from a help to buy scheme, which has proven to be quite beneficial in terms of addressing that mismatch between demand and supply and allowing the right type of houses to be built. If you want to benefit from that and you can only afford three and a half times income, you have to go where where you can find a property that meets that requirement. And invariably, those properties are being built on the outskirts of Dublin rather than in the cities. And the same is true if you go to Galway, Cork or Limerick. I mean, we built, I, I, the precise figure uh, is, is not, I don't have it in my head, but it's less than 800 units in Limerick last year. I think it was less than 600 units in Galway. I mean, these figures are incredibly low and most of them were standalone properties. So we are not meeting the growing needs of all of our cities and we are creating further urban sprawl. Okay. Orla Herty, why is this happening? Because if the demand is in the city centre, what is stopping the supply emerging where where, where people want to buy homes? Is it the price of land, cost of construction? Is it planning? Well, there, 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 are, there, are, there, are, there are. I suppose there are a series of, of constraints, and the short answer probably is that it hasn't been made a priority. Um, other competing classes have been allowed to move in, yeah. uh, particularly built to rent and co-living, um, which uh, completely out, uh, uh, you know, win out on any metric in terms of uh, of a developer and investor. Uh, co-living can can almost double the value of the the Why investment. Is that? Uh, because the returns are so much better. Um, if you look at a standard two-bedroom apartment, mm. um, you might uh, you might get rent in the city centre of two and a half thousand a month on that. And Marion might correct me on that. Um, the equivalent floor area for co-living will return more than six thousand a month. So you can see suddenly that that impacts hugely on land values and inflates land values and similarly with those other hotel type uses and student housing. So that has been an issue. Um, the, the changes in height limits has also been an issue because again it inflates land values. It doesn't necessarily make production any, any cheaper. But all of these ha- have been disruptors. Um, if, if there had was a priority given to what was actually needed, uh, it would also balance out, I think, uh, the market because that would, that would be the benchmark against which everything else uh, had to compete and that hasn't happened. Uh, so we're not seeing the type of development in the city centre that is, is needed. And in the longer term, we need to attract those families who are moving to the commuter belt by having something affordable, but also attractive. Um, you know, if somebody has been offered a very small one bedroom apartment as a, a family starter home or a three bedroom semi in Meads, well, at the same price, that's the choice they will make. Uh, but that isn't sustainable because there are other costs to the economy of them travelling out to Meath every day that need to be in the equation as well. So uh, these things need to be looked at, I think, I think differently. Uh, and also, I think we're, you know, when Marion talks about the costs and, and the lack of affordability, um, it's a little bit like when Aer Lingus used to charge £200 uh, pounds to fly to London. Uh, that was their business model. And if you took it line by line, you know, you could justify every cost on that bu- business model. Uh, but it came to a point where you, where you can't fill the plane or you can't run six flights a day on, on that model. Uh, and and an, a disruptor came into the market and an alternative model made uh, that business plan, I suppose, be interrogated differently uh, and uh, that it would be come at with a bit of fresh thinking and a bit of innovation. And really, that's what the housing market needs at the moment. I think we're stuck on a spec developer procurement model 
that is not working in the current market conditions. It was a model that worked well with cheap land and cheap finance and cheap labour. Mm. Uh, we don't have those conditions now. Finance is very expensive. Uh, there's a lot more risk in, in, in terms of uh, taking on these developments. Um, and obviously labour is very, very constrained. We have we have full employment virtually. Um, so And land has been inflated by other uses. So we need to, I think, rethink the production costs. It's not... It's not uh, actually building houses that's making housing unaffordable. It's the delivery model that's making housing unaffordable. Mm. How do you how do you how do you reshape that, Orla? Uh, personally, I think we should be looking at public land. Uh, we are really fortunate compared to a lot of other cities in that there's a lot of land in public ownership and public control, and it's also a very uh, low density city with a lot of vacancy. So we have a, a, a lot of advantages that other places don't necessarily have and and this goes for Cork and Limerick and Waterford and Galway as well. Um, uh, there's a lot of land within commu- short distance of the city centre uh, whether it's people cycling or people taking buses. Uh, you're not talking long distances to get to land like you might in London or somewhere. Um, so public land is, a, is an enormous opportunity to start to look at that and to start to uh, deliver housing uh, at scale at a level where a, a much larger cohort of people can actually afford around maybe 250,000. Isn't this part of government policy to make this happen? Um, well, I think currently the reliance is on that spec developer model. Um, and as we can see, there's very limited capacity. I mean, we have to remember what happened in the crash with, with a lot of these developers. And so the, the construction se- sector was, was really badly impacted. And, and that, you know, if it can't access land and it can't access capital and it's finding it difficult to get staff, um, there are very, it's very hard for new entrants into the market. Does that mean the government has to build the houses or...? I don't think it means them building. I think it means them facilitating a different way of delivering. So de-risking it for SMEs, uh, opening up land to more smaller entities, uh, maybe uh, on the finance side, looking at lower cost finance. Again, government level, that could be helped. Uh, and then doing something, some some smart moves, I think, around procurement in terms of materials and, and training and those things. Okay. Marion, what's your, your perspective on that? One of the interesting points in the Good Body Report related to... The, the type of housing sector we have at the moment, the type of construction sector. And as Orla said, the sector obviously had a hugely difficult time during the during the, during the the uh, recession. A lot of companies went bust. A lot of companies are still reliant on NAMA, which is meant to be withdrawing from the market over the next few years. And a lot of finances coming from international players who are inevitably, look, inevitably looking for a, a juicy return and hence they're going for high value options. How how do we break that cycle? Is there is there a fundamental issue with the with with the construction sector and the way it is set up at the moment and the, and the players that are there? I mean, I think the construction sector is suffering from constraints in mm. in all all its guises. I mean, the land development agency has been set up with this purpose in mind, if you like. Yeah. Um, but the problem, obviously, is there is a lag between when they set an agency like that up. It would have been great if we did it ten years ago, and when it actually starts delivering. And at, at its best goal, I think it's talking about delivering somewhere in the order of about seven thousand units a year which is helpful, but probably not enough. So it's a step in the right direction, but we need probably more of those type of measures. And certainly everything that Orla said around looking at the cost of construction, it's very hard to get economies of scale if you're only building 100 units. You know, if you compare what we can deliver in the Irish market and you really strip back, I mean, our 18,000 units last year, of which 5,000 were one-off housing, you're looking at a very small volume of properties and you divide that out amongst the construction sector. Nobody is getting economies of scale from that type of structure. So we do have to be innovative in terms of how we look at, at the cost of construction. 
Um, and then I also agree and I, I firmly believe that we have to look at the government's role in this in terms of if they want the market to deliver more and more and they're increasingly reliant on the private sector and while they have set up the land development agency it cannot, it cannot deliver quickly enough then they have to look at, at the role tax is taking in terms of that margin and if it could be in any way secured with tax take whether it's through a shared equity scheme or however whatever innovations are put in that allows more properties to be delivered at an affordable level that people can afford to buy that would be good but just on the co-living and the PRS sector I think it's important to say co-living is a very very, very small part of the market and I don't think it'll ever grow significantly. But PRS, we have to remember we do have a rental crisis as well, not just a an ownership price in terms of supply. So at any one time in Ireland today, there's less than 3,000 units available to rent. If you go back eight or nine years ago, that figure was closer to 20,000. And yet we've got this huge reliance on migration and this huge need for more rental accommodation. And if you look at the cycle of investors, investors are leaving. I mean, the last two years alone, the RTB figures are negative to the tune of 12,500 tenancies. So that proves that investors are leaving the marketplace. So PRS will start to address that only in the cities and only in the really probably core locations of the city. But they are an essential part of, of the solution in the long term. But they're not the panacea. They'll deliver a couple of thousand units a year and they're really not going to alter the market significantly. We need to think broader than just that. So I think it's important that they're there and they do have an impact. But a lot of what PRS are financing at the moment would not be built which, when you think about it in the context, would not be built were it not for the PRS entity. In other so you're words, talking about when you talk about PRS, you're talking about built to rent, generally big international investors coming in, and coming in, buying blocks of apartments and renting Or them out. forward committing to build those boxes, sure. which is what's happening now. So initially they came in and bought standing stock, which a lot of which was already occupied. Yeah. Um, and now they're, they're, a lot more of that would be forward committed to construct those units. Sure. And were it not for the built-to-rent sector, arguably they wouldn't be built at all. Okay, and obviously it, it's a controversial one because pejoratively known as cuckoo funds or whatever. Of uh, late. Of yeah. late, indeed. Uh, and, and some, I suppose, some controversy about the lack of availability of apartments to buy for, for Irish people. Yeah. But at the same time, as you say, a perception that maybe this supply wouldn't come on stream at all if, yeah. if there wasn't a demand. I mean, if you look at the, which again, if you think about what it means for the marketplace, if you look at the breakup value from from selling units and then you look at a single unit value, often the, the built to rent unit value is greater. So that means it's actually viable just viable to build those if they're if they're being delivered into a build to rent model. Now I'm not saying that's good. It's not good that we're in that position, but we still need those units to be built and to be supplied into the marketplace. So it's at least it's addressing that supply well, shortage. The same price issue here, don't we? As we have yeah. in the housing market, the supply isn't coming on at a price that people on any kind of average wages exactly. or even above average wages can afford. Yeah, and that is a challenge. I mean, there's going to be a group that can afford them and the, mm. the numbers coming through won't be that large. But we do have to consider that there will be a lot more people who need affordable rental accommodation and how do we address that mm. and if you think historically and no one's saying we made all the right um, sure. decisions in the past but historically we did have a relatively vibrant now sometimes over vibrant pri uh, private investor sector sure. where people bought two three or four units yeah, yeah. and that works when you've got a sparsely populated country if it's regulated properly and we have to ensure that we do regulate it properly we don't let it implode which we shouldn't mm. but if you think about locations like Sligo or Mayo or even Galway PRS is not going to be that active in those locations. So you need an alternative because you certainly need rental accommodation in those lo locations and affordable rental accommodation as well. Okay. Orla, what's your perspective on this? I mean, the, the role of funds is is controversial in this area. 
Um, I, I would agree with Marion that there is a limited market to some extent for for um, high price uh, private rental sector and it's a particular uh, it's a particular product and there there is a market for it well, it's, a it's, certain it's, market it's two incomes in, in two two good incomes effectively are, would be yes required, uh, I guess. Um, um, and I would agree that on, on co living there is a limited market as well the problem is that it's been deregulated uh, as being the same category as ordinary apartments so you know developers don't get together and say well you'll do the ten percent co living and we'll do the private rental sector uh, the impact is that when you look at any site or feasibility on any site you do the equations for the three options and you look at the three and whichever is the most attractive will set your site value and and that will mean that your standard apartments that we need won't won't happen because the other will be more attractive uh, and the risk therefore is that that uh, all of the smart money will rush into the private rented sector because the standards are lower the standards for the apartment buildings are lower and therefore the returns are better um, and we will find ourselves with a lot of small apartments in these buildings and maybe oversupply again of the wrong thing um, so having removed the levers of controlling the percentage and amounts of each, I think, has been quite damaging. But why are we seeing so many private landlords leave the leave the market? If returns seem to be high, rents are high, there's a lot of demand in the market. Why are so many small landlords pulling out? Is it is it just too much hassle? Too well, I, I, I think that's a complex question. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Um, I, I don't think it's as bad as people say, but obviously, you know, some of them have got out of negative equity. It's become more regulated as a sector, all of that. But having multiple small landlords does keep competition in the market. And one of the worries with the large investors taking blocks or taking control of a particular area is that they can, firstly, they can set high rents in that area because they have a monopoly position. They can afford to keep units vacant in order order to wait for a higher rent, mm. you know, and uh, that, again, will cause problems that there isn't enough competition in the market. And also, we have to remember that this investment is competing with every other city internationally and every other form of investment internationally now. Uh, so this money can flow out as quickly as it flows in. Mm. And uh, we could see a situation where uh, through uh, shifts in the international uh, context sure. that we don't have any control over, that suddenly this investment disappears and the pipeline dries up or that stock is, is put back on the market at a time maybe when the buildings start to deteriorate. Mm-hmm. That's happened in commercial properties during the bust, I guess. Marion, what's your perspective on that private, the private landlord issue? Okay. It seems a bit of a conundrum from, well, from, on the face you, of it. if you compare the two scenarios, so a private landlord is typically paying up to 52% tax on their rental income and then obviously also a mortgage. So the returns are actually quite negligible. So their net yield for most private rent, uh, private investors are, is less than 2%. So nobody's going to invest at that level. Um, and the challenge is that over the last 10 years, increasing regulation, which is good, has gone into the industry, mm-hmm. but also increasing tax. So the returns for the private investors have become um, unsustainable and they are leaving. So in terms of our own sales and Insurance, we sell about 16% of all the properties in the country. So it's a good big basket. 16. 16%. Yeah. So 60 would be great, but 16 <laughs> is all we have. <laughs> yes. um, we've, um, uh, if we're, over the last five years, every year consistently, between 35 and 40% of our vendors, people just regular vendors, mm-hmm. are selling investment properties. Okay. And half of those are going to owner-occupiers okay. and only half to investors. So, so the sector is shrinking. Is shrinking. And that's why the rental pressure is so great. I mean, that's what's driving the rental pressure across the country because while PRS is, is a good long-term solution in lots of ways, it brings professionalism and all of that, it's relatively new to Ireland, so it hasn't really delivered a lot. So if you're losing thousands on one side and you're only gaining a couple of thousand on this side, 
the net outflow is too great. Whereas what we need is probably seven to 10,000 rental stocks to be added every year. We're actually losing that every year. So we're not going to solve the rental crisis by putting rental caps in place. They're just putting a band-aid on the problem. They're not solving anything. Are they, not, are they not essential in the short term or do you think they're actually making things worse? Well, you see, arguably they could be making things worse because if you're a private landlord and you had a tenant in place, and I've heard this on many occasions where you have a tenant in place, they've been there for three or four years, they, saw, mm. you saw, they were there through the good times and the bad times and you didn't push up the rent successively mm. with the intention that every now and again you would move it upwards if they moved out. Mm. They were in place when the rent pressure zones come in and you might be getting a thousand euros a month in rent. Mm. From then forward, you can only grow that rent by 4% a year. Now, the next... A property who might be a standalone span new property could be getting double that. So the landlord here is, is incentivized to sell the property. But unfortunately, the property may not be bought by another landlord because the new landlord can only charge the old rent. So while it's the it's the unintended consequences, so it sounds good to say, I'll just prevent rents from going by more than 4%. And that's fine if you're a tenant in situ. Sure. But if you're not, your choice is going down and you know you'll still pay 4% more and you'll have less choice. Yeah, yeah indeed. Can I... One, I suppose, one uh, one question that that interests me is the people who come to you looking to buy a property. Uh, are they still looking to buy kind of the old Irish, if you like, three bed, four bed, semi? Uh, or is there kind of a an increased kind of realization now that the future may be different, that people may be living in smaller accommodation? Or have we really got our heads around that? Because the whole of government policy is is based on this, what we say, densification. But it seems like everyone still wants to buy the three-bed semi. Well, I suppose if you look, if, if you come into any office today and you look to buy, particularly a new property, the choice of, of your apartments will be tiny yeah. because we're just not building them. So they so might the come in with thinking, no. So they come in and what are they faced with? They're faced with three-bed semis because that's what we're building at the moment. So it's not so much a, that, that we can say with any certainty that people are moving on or they haven't moved on. They don't have that option, really. In in the main, the vast majority of properties that are offered to them will be traditional. So we haven't really got past first base here yet, Orla? No, and I, I think the, the point there that the choice between, you know, a small apartment or, or a three-bedroom house is very stark. Space is really important, you know. Uh, um, people will commute for space if, it, if, the, if options aren't available to them. And un, unless that is addressed as, as a real issue, um, we're not going to go anywhere because you can build as many uh, small apartments as you like uh, if people stop at the threshold and say, well, sure. uh, there are better options available, even if it means commuting or moving outside S- Dublin. So mm. we have to address the, the challenge of that. And that means, you know, mixed communities. It means affordability. It means quality and, and quality that people can trust. Um, we have very little confidence in the construction industry around apartments given the legacy issues. Um, you know, these are, you know, maybe not said often enough, but there are real barriers to convincing people that they can have family life in the city and put down roots. And public spaces, I presume. Public well. space, amenity, good schools, all of that is what works in cities that have addressed this challenge of sprawl. Okay. Final question to you both. Um, there's 101 things that we've come up with in terms of what needs to be done. If you A couple of priorities that you would actually do now if you if you were in charge if you were the minister for finance for presenting day. the budget or <laughs> yeah. if you're in charge for one day what are, what are the okay. what are the achievable I, things that can be done okay quickly? i think the very i think we need a couple of quick fixes sure. i do think one of our biggest challenges and i think it will hit us in the face someday in terms of fdi investment is the rental sector so i would address that immediately i would stop all the noise around cuckoo funds because it's just noise and i would leave 
I would state that I'm not I'm not going in to interfere with which is what is standard practice on a global marketplace and I would address the cost uh, for a private investor I don't mean incentivize but sure. stop disincentivizing I would make an announcement around top to buy and I would say it's staying for another three years and I would probably look at, at the cap and reduce it down if you want to to be seen to be quite prudent in that and say maybe bring it down to sub 400 or sub 350,000 and really push affordable the units the help to buy cap help okay to so buy the help to buy scheme is due to run out this year nobody knows what's yeah. going to happen it's possibly a a factor limiting limiting building yeah. and limiting supply. And what will happen at the, in, if it's not addressed is that there will be a rush to deliver properties this year, but what happens next year? Yeah. So we need yeah. certainty to plan next year. We need certainty sooner rather than later around, around that. And then I think I would, I would begin to address all of these other factors around viability of development. And that would be to really break down what the government can do to get that balance right between cost of delivery and, and what is an affordable amount of a mortgage that people can take. And that needs to be innovative. It needs to be fast tracking the land development agency. It needs to look at the overall cost of development and perhaps bring in something like a shared ownership scheme where you are shared equity scheme, where you allow the cost for the purchaser to come down without um, without uh, disrupting supply. I think that's really important. Okay, Orla, what are your what are your quick wins? Uh, well, I wouldn't agree with Marion on the help to buy. I think if you okay. look at the stats, you'll see that most of the people who are availing of it don't seem to need it. Um, you know, two thirds of the borrowers are taking less, are borrowing less than 90 percent. Uh, 20 percent of them are self-builders. 20 percent of them are, are buying property more than 375,000. So given that there's a limited amount of money, it's probably not the best use of it. I'm not sure that everybody needs it. And taking that uh, approach on value for money, I think we need to filter every penny that's been spent on housing through a filter of value for money and, and affordability. Um, there are a lot of different schemes, some of which are delivering, some of which are not. So that would lead into, I think, uh, uh, it's been time now for a review of Rebuilding Ireland that, that filters all of this and looks at the, the hard data and what's working and what isn't. So we need to start, start, start from start, first base, so start to Start so looking to at Rebuilding Ireland 2 and, and the key I think might be that Rebuilding Ireland 2 might be building uh, rather than restoring the market it might be actually about restoring the construction industry. Okay. Okay, Marion Finnegan uh, of Sherry Fitzgerald Orla Hegarty of UCD great insights thank you for joining us today. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, June 2015. Welcome back. A surge in savings into the credit union sector is causing major problems, forcing many of the community lenders into imposing savings caps on their members as a way of reducing their deposit levels. Irish Times business reporter Fiona Redden is with me now to explain why this is happening and where it leaves credit union members. Fiona, for many years credit unions have fallen over themselves to try to attract savings from their members, but now they're putting limits uh, on the amount people can deposit. What's going on? That's right. It sounds a bit bizarre, doesn't it? Because, I mean, when you think a credit union is one of the most basic services they're going to offer you is a home for your savings and your deposits. But um, they've started now putting limits on these savings. So Intercontra Credit Union, for example, has cut its limit as low as 15,000. Other credit unions are 20, 30,000, maybe 50,000. And I guess some people might think, well, credit union savers, you know, they might even have that much. So what's the big deal about it? But actually, savings and credit unions have risen substantially over the past few years. Of course, Irish people have been saving more and a lot of older people have significant savings. We're all that bit risk averse, have more savings. Savings are up 20% 
in the credit union since 2008. So there is a lot of money there at the moment. So why are they doing this, Fiona? Well, it's a factor really of the low interest rate environment. I mean, as we know, across Europe, interest rates are at 0% and have been for some since 2016 and don't look like they're going to move anytime soon. And what the banks have been doing at for the retail level, I mean, we're not earning much, but we're still in positive territory. But corporate deposits, they're actually starting to charge people. I mean, AIB, it's understood to be charging corporates as much as um, 65 basis points. So if you are a credit union and you have money on, need to keep some money on deposit, that's costing you 6500 for for 100000 of a okay, deposit. so the credit union needs to keep money on deposit. It goes to AIB or Bank of Ireland or Bank of Ireland and say, we're actually going to charge, charge you for you the privilege for of this. Yeah. And they have to keep more and more on deposit because of central bank rules. Okay. So they have to keep 10% of their deposits as a reserve. And as their savings grow, the amount they have to keep on deposit grows. And then the amount they get charged grows. So they can't find a home for these savings. Okay, so the central bank, for prudential reasons, is saying to the credit unions, for every, you need to keep a large cash or or, Yeah, so for every 10 euros, you need to keep one euro in reserve. Okay, so the more the credit unions have on their books, the more they need to keep in reserve. And in turn, they're losing money. Exactly. Hand over fist on that. And I mean, you think, well, one ideal solution for the credit unions would be just to lend out more money and shrink everything. But that seems to be quite difficult for them to do. I mean, their lending is down almost 50% since 2008. Okay. Why is is that the case? Well, I mean, as you said there, one reason possibly is we're all just more risk averse having Mm -hmm. gone through the bust. People are less likely to take out a loan for a holiday, whatever it might be. And then there's obviously more competition in personal loan Mm -hmm. markets. You've got AIB, I mean, has all these ads saying they'll give you a loan in an hour, three hours. Sure. which might seem a lot easier than going to a credit union where you have to wait till the credit committee meets mm. and that committee might meet, you know, once a week, once a month. You know, it differs across the country. Mm. And then in car loans, I guess you've got PCPs, which again can seem more attractive to people. Mm. Are credit union loans relatively expensive compared to the rest of the market? Or are I, they I would still say they're quite competitive. No, they're quite competitive. So it's really the ease of access and the ease of... It's the ease of access and the appetite. The appetite. Credit unions had looked to expand their ability to lend and move into areas like mortgages. Is that is that stalled? It seems to. I mean, again, it comes back, I think, to the central bank and its mm. view on all these things. Credit unions themselves, they're merging. You know, you have still have more mergers and they're getting stronger in that respect. But the central bank, we all know there have been some high profile incidents in the sector. So there's been a lot of mergers in the sector, but it's probably fair to say that from the central bank's point of view, they'd like that process to go a bit further. Possibly, or they're still a bit cautious about allowing them to take on even more business, I would say. Okay. And obviously, we'd all, I mean, it would be great for competition to have credit unions as a real viable option for your mortgage. Mm. In terms of savings rates, do they offer, I mean, banks are obviously offering savers very little at the moment. Are credit unions uh, offering offering savers anymore? No, I mean dividends, they give you a dividend on your savings and I think it's you typically get maybe 0.01%, 0.05% at the moment. So it's it's really no better. No, and I mean the the funny thing with all of this I guess is that the banks are charging the credit unions and other corporates money to hold Mm. their money on deposit and then if you're a saver and you're getting your letter from your credit union saying Sorry, you know, you have to remove some of these savings. We can't hold them anymore. Mm. They're going public. Where are they going to go with those savings? Sure. Back so to the banks. Exactly. 
First of all, how long, how long do people have to move their money? So you get a letter from the credit union. Do they give you a few months or does it depend on the credit union? A lot union? of them don't because, I mean, again, I guess it's credit unions kind of voluntary movement and mm. they don't give you a very firm um, timeline on it, but it's usually a year. To, to move your to move your to move so your excess funds your excess funds so you have a bit of time so you have a bit of savers time savers have a bit of time to consider their options but as you said the options aren't the options great. aren't great and I think you know if you're an older person and you've been told to move your savings it is a bit stressful for people yeah. as to where to find I know one credit union manager said that people were getting cross with her because she couldn't recommend an alternative home for their savings mm. so credit union savers are really in the same dilemma as everybody else that if they want to earn a greater return they have to maybe take on some risk and I presume a lot of the more traditional the older credit union savers uh, won't want to do that they won't want to get involved in investment products or the markets or you whatever w- you they want wouldn't to retain access so. to their money because I mean if you look at AB Bank of Ireland who are offering you know very poor rates of return they keep growing their retail deposit books so mm. it's not a disincentive Are there options for people with large blocks of money uh, in terms of deposits, deposit rates, are any no. of the banks offering no. any more? No. <laughs> no, short <laughs> in answer. In short, yeah. I mean, I think about 0.3% is the best you're going to get now. Okay, okay. Which, which is, is very low. Yeah, inflation is low, but that is a Well, inflation is a, a lot higher return. than that. Absolutely, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I do think there could be scope for the government. I know, I mean, we do, uh, back in January, they issued a bond at 1.1%. Mm. I mean, we have the state savings vehicle, mm. but again, the rates of return, they, they they often seem to peg them to the rates of offered by the banks, mm. which is unfortunate, I think, that they wouldn't offer mm. domestic savers a bit more, taxpayers a bit more, uh, when they offer institutional investors. And they do require you to tie up your money for a period. I mean, they were traditionally a very yeah. a fa- a favoured route for, for for the saver, but they also or they also require you to tie up your money for a particular period of time. Yeah, but I think people would be prepared to do that. Sure, but I guess when the state is raising money on the markets at 0.2% for 10-year money or whatever and uh, minus rates for... For one year, money. This the Minister for Finance there. is going to say, "Why? Why should I? Why should I do that?" I know, but it's a problem. It's becoming a problem now. Yeah. If inflation is one level, and I know you say inflation isn't as high, mm. but if you ask the typical person, they'll say the inflation that they're facing in their own home is quite high. Sure, sure. In terms of their everyday expenses, sure. And then at the other side, they're losing, actually losing money now in their savings. Yeah, and indications from the ECB today that. That isn't going to change anytime soon. Good news for borrowers, but bad news for bad savers. Bad news for savers. But, I mean, you'd wonder anyway, wouldn't you, even if the ECB did raise rates, would banks pass that on to savers? Would you think so? <laughs> would I think so? <laughs> <laughs> History would suggest possibly not, Fiona. Possibly not. <laughs> okay, we leave it there. Uh, thank you, Fiona Ren. Okay, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to all our contributors. Today's podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cliff Taylor. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash 
upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 